Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the latest edition of the Federalist Files. This is going to be Federalist number 32. It is titled The Same Subject Continued Concerning the General Power of Taxation. It is written by Alexander Hamilton, January 2nd, 1788. Topics include state power to taxation with the exception of imports and exports. And that's really the only topic of this one. This one's a little shorter. This one's going to be a shorter one for sure. Uh, there's really not that much there. Generally, the theme of this one is that the state has the power of taxation with the exception of imports and exports from the federal government. But if they, the state has their own inspection services, they can have some sort of a tax that pays just strictly for their inspection services. And that's it. There's no other revenue that can be made by import or export taxation. So Hamilton begins this one. He states, and I quote, Although I am of the opinion that there would be no real danger of the consequences which seem to be apprehended to the state governments from a power in the union to control them in the levies of money, because I am persuaded that the sense of the people, the extreme hazard of provoking the resentments of the state governments, and a conviction of the utility and necessity of local administrations for local purposes would be a complete barrier against the oppressive use of such a power. End quote. So he's saying there's no real danger in giving the states, the state government the power to to tax, but then there's also no danger in only giving the federal government the specific power of taxation through exports and, and imports. And he thinks that they're both, it's good that both of them can gain revenue somehow because then they counteract each other. They can, they work as a barrier or a safeguard against each other. So next he states, and I quote, Yet I am willing to here to allow in its full extent the justness of the reasoning which requires that the individual states should possess an independent and uncontrollable authority to raise their own revenues for the supply of their own wants, end quote. So he's saying they should have their own independent structure of taxation. He's saying it's uncontrollable authority, meaning there's really no, uh, there's no roof on it they they have the full authority to tax how they please to raise revenues to supply their own wants and needs um and like i said the scope of this is different obviously as it relates to today because today the state government is in charge of many things i know the new jersey state government is pretty um, pretty large it's a huge bureaucracy which is why they just raise the tax rates here for income and the property taxes outrageous as well as the state income tax i mean or the state sales tax so yeah he, he's just recognizing that the states are going to have to have some sort of taxation apparatus as well to fill their own needs and their wants and he's saying that should be uncontrollable it should be there really should be no roof on it and it should be really what the people want and that's that's the whole that's the whole point of the self-government is if it is oppressive or it's too much then the people will vote or they will recognize that it's too much. They will speak out. And their their representatives are supposed to be representative of them in the state legislatures as well. So they would try not to impose a high tax rate. <clears throat> now this is under... Now the only exception to this rule that he has is duties, as in taxes, on imports and exports. And he continues on that. He states... And making this concession, I affirm that with the sole exception of duties on imports and exports, they would, under the plan of the convention, retain that authority in the most absolute and unqualified sense, and that an 
attempt on the part of the national government to abridge them in the exercise of it would be a violent assumption of power unwarranted by any article or clause of its constitution, end quote. So he's saying even in the constitution, the federal government does not have the power to abridge or to encroach upon the state's right of regu- of, of taxation with the exception of imports and, and uh, exports. That is the only tax that specifically specifically set aside by the federal government. I actually think there is a a provision in the constitution that states and I think he gets to it in this one it states that upon the question or upon the affirmation from the national legisla- uh, the national legislature the state governments can actually tax imports and exports but they need they need to have the permission of the federal legislature. I'm pretty sure he goes over that here. So then next he goes on. He asserts that uh, any right that uh, rights that aren't exclusively delegated to the national government would be given to the states. And this is very important. This is like the Bill of Rights, 10th Amendment. I believe it's something like, maybe I should look it up. <clears throat> it's something like uh, any rights that aren't given to the federal head or, or are not listed here are given to the states or the people. I'm pretty sure that's what it states. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So anything that's not regulated in the federal Constitution, essentially, those powers that are not delegated, they're either given to the people or to the states themselves. And really, they should be given to the people and the people, you know, they elect the people, they elect their representatives in the state, and then the state, you know, they hold certain powers, but that should all be voted on in terms of the representation. Now, next he goes on, he states, and I quote, an entire consolidation of the states into one complete national sovereignty would imply an entire subordination of the parts, and whatever powers might remain in them would be altogether dependent on the general will, but as the plan of the convention aims only at a partial union or consolidation, the state government would clearly retain all the rights of sovereignty which they had before, which they before had, and which were not by that act exclusively delegated to the United States, end quote. So what he means when he's saying the exclusively delegated to the United States, he's just implying the import and export. But he's also stating fundamentally that our system is not a direct democracy. It is not where there is just one complete national sovereignty. Uh, it is He is really stating the principle of federalism where there's somewhat a little bit of a dependence on each other, a partial union or a consolidation of state governments that have a federal head, but they still recognize the state government power. Thus, it's not a top-to-down uh, system like a national sovereignty kind of would be. Well, and that's what he says. National sovereignty would imply an entire subordination of the parts. He is recognizing that state governments and federal governments are almost kind of not on the same page. They're not equal in their power, but whatever's set aside by the federal constitution, that's where the federal government will supersede. But everything else really is handed to the state. So there's certain specific powers that are that are specifically homogenous to a state, and then there's some that are homogenous to the federal head. Now, next he goes on. He states, and I quote, This exclusive delegation, or rather this alienation of state sovereignty, would only exist in three cases. And this is important here. 
He states where the Constitution in express terms granted an exclusive authority to the Union, were granted in one instance an authority to the Union, and in another prohibited the states from exercising the like authority, and were granted an authority to the Union to which a similar authority in the states would be absolutely and totally contradictory or repugnant. So he's saying the the idea of exclusivity in any power delegation to a federal government, as in, if we're going to give exclusive power to the federal government, it'll happen in three different cases, or three different scenarios. He's saying, where the Constitution expressly states that the Union has exclusive authority, or where it grants, in one instance, authority to the Union, and then in another instance, in, the, in this Constitution, it grants uh, or it prohibits states. So you're going to have the union, it has this instance of authority, and then it prohibits the states from practicing the same type of, it prohibits them from practicing the same type of authority. So that's the two cases. And then the third one is where it grants the union the authority, as in the federal government, grants them the authority. And if it were to grant a similar authority to the states, it would be absolutely contradictory or repugnant. Those are the three different scenarios where they're going to be giving exclusive delegation of authority to the federal government. And then he goes on, he actually explains some instances of this. So here's another, here's another way to explain it, maybe that'll help you better understand. <clears throat> In simpler terms, the state government have their right to sovereignty, but cannot make any laws abridging the power of the national government. For example, in terms of collecting taxes on imports and exports, this exclusively is a right of the national government and not that of the state unless given consent of the state or of the national legislature. And I've stated that before. Now, he goes on to actually list examples of three these three cases. So, exclusive legislation over the district to be appropriated as the seat of government. The answers to the first case, the first clause of the same section empowers congress to lay and collect taxes duties imposts and excises and the second clause of the 10th section of the same article and then he's talking about the federal constitution declares no state uh, shall without the consent of congress lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports except for the purpose of executing its inspection laws so that's just a little precursor now he's actually going to now he goes through the very third one. So I guess the first one there was um, over the district to be appropriated as the exclusive legislation. This answers the first case. Yeah, so if there's ex if it says legitimately in the Constitution exclusive legislation, then that is the first case because it's using the word exclusive. It is giving that power exclusively to the federal government. That is the first case. Now, the second case, the second clause, or the second case, it is... It's the case here where he says to lay down, collect duties, taxes, imposts, and excises is the power of the Congress, is in the federal government. And then it also has a prohibition of the state. No state shall. That is the prohibition part. That is the second case that he stated earlier. Um, and then without, without the consent of Congress, uh, except on purpose of ex executing its inspection laws, which I stated. And now the third case, the third case, I believe, is when it would be contradictory for the state government to hold anything of that type of power that was similar to the federal. So he goes on with the third case. He states, The third will be found in that clause which declares the Congress shall have power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization throughout the United States. 
This must necessarily be exclusive because if each state had power to prescribe a distinct rule, there could not be a uniform rule. End quote. So he mean uniform meaning a crime. He states it throughout the United States. And this was also something I think that was actually going on during the Articles of Confederation where the state government can declare that you were a state citizen in that state if you if you applied to be one, but there was really no regulation. So then you can go from that state and go to another state and also be a citizen in, in another state too. It was very weird the way it worked and which is why it didn't work. And they have the constitution now. So then next Hamilton goes on to cite states powers of taxation. He goes on, he states, and I quote the power of imposing taxes on all articles other than exports and imports. This is, I contend is manifestly a concurrent and co-equal authority in the United States and in the individual states. There is plainly no expression in the granting clause which makes that power exclusive in the Union. There is no independent clause or sentence which prohibits the state from exercising it, end quote. So there's nothing that is a prohibition of the states to exercise the power of taxation. The only thing uh, that they are not allowed. So in other words, he's saying that be, because his dissenters are saying, oh, well, you're saying the federal government's too power beca- too powerful because they have exclusive power of taxation on import, imports and exports, meaning they also have exclusive power of taxation in a general sense, which wasn't true. He was saying you were confounding my argument and the principles that are in the Constitution. He's saying just because there's an exclusive right of the union doesn't mean that the state also doesn't have their own individual right to impose taxes on articles um, of comp of of consumption, he said the only thing they can't impose taxes are the exports and the export the imports. So then he goes on. He states, "I mean that the states, in all cases to which the restriction did not apply, would have a concurrent power of taxation with the union. The restriction in question amounts to what lawyers call a negative pregnant, that is a neg- negation of one thing." and an affirmation of another, a negation of the authority of the states to impose taxes on imports and exports, and an affirmation of their authority to impose them on other articles, uh, end quote. So what he's saying here is is that this is a, what I guess lawyers would call negative pregnant, uh, meaning that there's a negation of one thing, his negation is the state government did not have the power to, uh, it's, it's stated there because it's a, uh, yeah, the, the state government did not have the power to tax imports and exports, but the affirmation in the second, I guess, clause, you would call it, is that they do have power to impose taxation on other articles of consumption. So then he goes on, he states, it would be mere sophistry to argue that it was meant to exclude them absolutely from the imposition of taxes of the former kind and to leave them at liberty to lay other subject to the control of the national legislature. The restraining of prohibitory clause only says that they shall they shall not, without the consent of Congress, lay such duties, end quote. So he's saying that it's not even, it's actually, it's exclusive power to the federal head, the the Congress, but the Congress does have their own uh, delegable authority where they actually can consent and allow them to lay duties on exports and imports even if they wanted to. So this isn't even a complete and absolute, well, it is really a complete and absolute power because they can delegate it, but it's not complete and absolute in in terms of that it can't be changed. It is not mute, it's it's not immutable. It can be changed if it needs to be changed to flow swiftly 
if if revenue is needed in certain areas and the Congress allows such areas to get revenue through exports and imports. So he's saying it's not even that much, it's not really that absolute on top of that, is that the, the legislature can even, the, the national legislature can even allow certain states to get import and export taxation. So then he goes on, he states, it is indeed possible that a tax might be laid on a particular article by a state which might render it inexpedient that thus a further tax should be laid on the same article by the union, but it would not imply a constitutional inability to impose a further tax, end quote. So I don't know if he's really referring to the federal government here by a state which might render it inexpedient that thus a further tax should be laid on. I'm not exactly sure what he's referring to. He is. He, I, I think what he's really saying is there may be situations that you have where there's articles of consumption and there's going to be a taxation coming from the state and then the federal government also puts a taxation on it too, which makes it inexpedient as in people are not going to buy it, but they still do have that power to do so if they want to. And he's going to explain how they're going to really, I guess, remedy or they're going to work within the system to fix it. Now he states, and I quote, the quantity of the imposition, the expediency and inexpediency of an increase on either side would be mutually questions of prudence, but there would be involved no direct contradiction of power. The particular policy of the na national and of the state systems of finance might now and then not exactly coincide and might require reciprocal forbearances. It is not, however, a mere possibility of inconvenience in the exercise of powers, but an immediate constitutional repugnancy that can be by implication alienate and extinguish a pre-existing right of sovereignty end quote so i guess what he's saying is his dissenters are coming out saying well what happens if the federal government's taxing too much and the state government's also taxing then it's inexpedient people aren't going to buy the products and we're not going to bring in any revenue and he's pretty much saying that is a he at the very end he says it is not however a mere possibility of inconvenience in the exercise of powers but an immediate constitutional repugnancy that can by implication alienate and extinguish a pre-existing right of sovereignty he's saying because of this repugnancy this constitutional repugnancy or we're playing hypotheticals because of these hypothetical situations we can't extinguish a right to sovereignty in the states as well as the federal government that's really what he's trying to say there um and Yes, because of that, they'll really work, realistically, they'll work in the system out. That's what he's trying to say. And then I think he says at one point in here, and might require reciprocal forbearances, as in they're going to have to work it out. You know, let's say the state is taxing something at 10%, and the federal government's only taxing it at 2%, and the federal government isn't bringing in enough, the state might have to lower their taxation to 8%, so then we can rise up the federal government to 4%. That's all he's really saying. And then he goes on here. He states... And I quote, the necessity of the concurrent jurisdiction in certain cases results from the division of the sovereign power and the rule that all authorities of which the states are not explicitly divested in favor of the union remain with them in full vigor in not a theoretical consequence of that division, but is clearly admitted by the whole tenor of the instrument which contains the articles of the proposed constitution, end quote. So he's saying... You're going to need concurrent jurisdiction. You're going to need concurrent sovereignty powers and taxation. Because, or else, you know, we're going to have a system where a state ends up becoming divested. They have no money. They're destitute in favor of the union having money and remaining in uh, full power. And the theoretical consequence of that division is clearly admitted through whole tenor of the instrument, which contains the articles 
of the proposed constitution. Oh, is not a theoretical consequence, is what he's saying. He's, he's pretty much saying that, that everyone's going to be able to figure out figure it out right now. The Constitution, the, the point of the document was to be very broad in, in stating it, and the specifics would be done when they were instilled through law in Congress, but it was a very good governing document to get a broad sense of the reality that our country, what we were looking to form, really. And then I think he has one more quote here, and then he also he refers to uh, Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. I'll go through that just as an example, and that's really it, because this is going to be probably a pretty short one. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Okay, so very last quote he states, and I quote, he states, We there find that now, with notwithstanding the affirmation or the affirmative grants of general authorities, there has been the most pointed care in those cases where it was deemed improper that the like authorities should reside in the states to insert negative clauses prohibiting the exercise of them by the states. The 10th section of the first article consists altogether of such provisions. Provisions, The circumstance is a clear indication of the sense of the convention and furnishes a rule of interpretation out of the body of the act which justifies the position I have advanced and refutes every hypothesis to the contrary, end quote. So he's saying every single hypothesis that's been coming out so far, saying that if, if the federal government has some sort of power of something, it distinctly means automatically that it is a negation of the power of of the states. He said that is that is fallacious, that is not true. And he goes because we specifically laid out things that are exclusive only to the federal government and has a specific negation of power from the state governments. And, and he says it's all in the 10th section for, of the first article of the Constitution, which I'm going to read off now. has three clauses to it. And this is all the things that negates the state's powers. Section 10, uh, Clause 1, he, go, he states, <clears throat> not he states, well, they state, I guess, the people state, no state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, and confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin, a tender in payment of debts, pass any bill of attender, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. Now those are all things that we will go over as these papers start to open up now most importantly these are all really powers from what i've read so far this is all congress powers that are already laid out in what the congress can do a lot of them are or they have to do with congress because a bill of a, a, a for example a bill of a tander is a legislative bill to arrest somebody which is illegal in the United States across the board, whether it's in state governments or it is in the federal government. It is completely illegal. They shall not pass one because that is tyranny on its face. You can't have a legislative authority grant somebody as a criminal without any type of judicial process. So Section 10, Clause 2, next he states... No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for ex executing its inspection laws and the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be the use of the Treasury of the United States and all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress." So that's just saying imports and exports specifically is exclusive to the federal government, but they can, if they find it absolutely, uh, if, if they get the consent of the Congress, uh, 
they can allow states to actually tax those and take in some of the revenue. The only thing that they are allowed to keep hold on to is what's necessary for executing their inspection laws. And everything's supposed to be all this money that is accrued goes to the revenue, all goes to the Treasury of the United States, which is the union, which is the federal government. And so the very last clause is the third one. It states... No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit a de- of delay. End quote. So that that's just, they really can't act. They can act as a sovereign state, but they can't act as, as if they are their own country. That's really what that clause is stating because our federal government can, um, can, well, you know what, actually it says the state, if it is, if it has, it says without the consent of Congress. So it actually keeps the door open that a state, as long as they have the consent of Congress, they can go ahead and enter into agreements and compacts with other states or with other foreign powers or engage in war unless actually invaded, which is a totally different scenario. You get invaded by a foreign country, then you, you know, you fight, you throw hands, uh, so I guess you can as long as it's all up to the consent of the Congress, which makes sense because the federal, you have federalism. And because that is all of the power of the federal legislature, it is of the legislative character in our federal government. So that is a power that they can, I guess, not delegate, but they can allow them to practice if it really is needed. And I think they left that 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 provision in there because it is expedient in case of exigency circumstances it can be used where the congress can allow them to do that so yeah that's it i mean that'll end this one that is federalist number 32 i think yeah we're going to be going over 33 on friday greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in make sure you check out the the video that's going to be coming out should be coming out thursday morning that's going to be current events and at this point, I mean, I am recording early. This is Sunday right now. I'm not really sure about what's going on with Pauler. They're going to kick everybody off, from what I understand, uh, as well as Amazon's going to kick them off too. So just remember, you people that are uh, conservatives out there, I'm not asking you to change your life, but just remember who is who has your back when the going gets tough. Just remember what companies, and, and I've, I've stated this before, but corporatism is being used right now as a proxy for the federal government to circumvent the Constitution. They're using the power of big corporations to take away civil liberties that are endowed by our creator from the from the citizenry. That's that's what they're currently doing. And I see a lot of liberals like defending because it's it's all about expediency. It's all about political expediency. And honestly, if you're if you're not down with First Amendment, you're not down with freedom of speech you're not down with any of the Bill of Rights, you really just should leave at this point. Um, If you want to somehow change and make constitutional amendments to change the founding fabric and the the core foundation of what our country was founded on, we don't need you here. You can leave. Uh, That is something that is non-negotiable. And the fact that you stand on the side of big corporations, the same people that complain about the big corporations, and then they stand on the side of big corporations because... It's politically expedient to you because you cannot actually formulate your own argument. So that's what you go ahead with. Uh, it is pathetic. You guys are hacks and you guys are clowns. So, yeah, that'll that'll conclude this one. That is Federalist number 32. We're going to be doing 33 on Friday. Make sure you check out Thursday morning, early Thursday morning. I should have 
the current event episode, please drop the mic, like, share, subscribe. Thank you. Everyone have a good one. I will see you on Friday.